Ladies and gentlemen, the Honourable Bob Ray, Member of Parliament for Toronto Centre and Foreign Affairs Critic for the Liberal Party of Canada, needs little introduction. He has accomplished so much in his tenure as a municipal, provincial and federal policymaker, leader, author and scholar that someone in my position would require a degree in library science to accurately and completely present his biography. So I will chart a different course on my mission to prepare you for his remarks. I'm going to share with you the thesis of his latest book, Exporting Democracy, a thesis that speaks volumes about why Mr. Ray is here today. Early in the book, he declares, democracy is the working assumption of modern politics in the West. He goes on to say the difficulty is that the sharing or exporting of democracy comes with heavy baggage, the baggage of imperialism. Furthermore, he explains, intrinsic to the imperial idea is the assumption that the values of the center of the empire are inherently universal and superior to others, that the conquering nation has both a right and an obligation to proselytize and impose those superior values even by force. Here's the hook, ladies and gentlemen. If pluralism, he writes, the rule of law and equality are simply grafted or imposed onto all societies as, as a kind of universal good to be adopted quickly, or worse, to be swallowed with a gun to the head, the democratic exercise is bound to fail. Our own experience in embracing these ideas and making them work in the West has been a long, difficult, and often violent history. But these ideas now lie at the heart of what we understand democracy to be, so it is not possible for us to simply abandon them this tension takes us down some difficult paths. Ladies and gentlemen, this is a powerful challenge to one of the central roles Canadians and other Westerners have taken upon, taken upon themselves as world leaders. Few, if any of us, want to be known as modern-day imperialists. Yet how un-Canadian would it be to stand by and let inequality, the violation of human rights, and social and economic oppression continue unchallenged? Please join me in inviting Mr. Ray to take us down these difficult paths and immerse us in his perspectives on this crucial topic. The Honorable Bob Ray. Thank you very much. Thank you. Well, ladies and gentlemen, uh, it's a great pr privilege and pleasure to be here. Uh, this, this afternoon, a number of you have commented on my somewhat different appearance. I want to assure you that this is uh, temporary. Do not adjust your sets. Uh, but nevertheless, I, together with some 79 other parliamentarians, I'm uh, helping to raise money for the cause of research uh, and the prevention and cure for prostate cancer. And I would encourage uh, anyone who's either watching or listening uh, to go on to movember.ca and make a donation. You can, of course, make it to me if you so desire. Uh, but there are a number of others from all political stripes who are engaging in this activity. It's a good cause. Second thing I can say to my audience here that uh, there are copies of the book that are on sale outside. And I'll be happy to sign them after the, uh, uh, after the speech. If, if any of you are, are prepared to, uh, to rush out and buy one, please wait till after the speech is over, because I'd <laughs> appreciate it. I, I hate to single uh, two people out that I want to particularly pay uh, tribute to. 
in being here. The first, of course, is my mother, who's uh, suffered through many of my speeches over the years, and I'm very, very grateful for her uh, presence here at, uh, at lunchtime. And there are some things that I have to say about the traditions of Canadian diplomacy and about uh, the importance of our not simply remembering those traditions, but are, in fact, renewing them and building on them. Um, and uh, anyone who knows how, uh, how it, what a diplomat's life is like and what it means to represent a country abroad will know that it takes two to do so, and I'm very proud that my mother is with us and is here to, to, uh, to listen to what I have to say. I'm, uh, I'm also very honored uh, that uh, my good friend Hal Jackman is here. Uh, the, to describe our relationship as the odd couple would be uh, uh, an understatement of our, have the, the evolution of our relationship, uh, but he is a dear friend, and I'm very grateful for his continuing generosity and support and the support uh, of uh, Dominion Insurance for, uh, for, this, uh, for this speech. Um, you will know that I have a, that I, please. <laughs> you, you, will, you will know two things about the way I talk. The first one is that there, because of modern day communications, the, the, the organization of the Liberal Party requires that I have a text, uh, which has been duly distributed to the, to the media in Ottawa. I'm giving a speech today. Uh, Dominic LeBlanc is giving a speech in Ottawa, and Siobhan Cody is giving a speech in Halifax. And there's a tremendous effort to coordinate what we are all saying so that we'll be absolutely in, in sync. Uh, but others who have been with me for some time, and I'm glad that many of you are, are here today, will know that, th th unfortunately, this is not how I, how I do business. Uh, <laughs> I will do my best to be faithful to the text which uh, we all worked on, but uh, you will appreciate that sometimes I tend to, tend to stray uh, a little bit. Um, it seems to me the central challenge that we face today in talking about foreign policy uh, is to... Uh, is to get people interested on the one hand, but it's also even more than that. It's to, it's to deal with a very profound feeling of skepticism and concern that exists in our own country. It certainly exists in the United States. Uh, we can see it uh, across Europe. Uh, all those countries that are going through a tremendously difficult recession uh, in which there are great preoccupations with events in life at home, uh, in which people say, uh, you know, I want my government to be more worried about what's happening to me than I want them to be worried about what's happening in some, in some far-off country, in some far-off place. And I'm much more concerned about the day-to-day, -day, about jobs, about who we are, about how I live my life, than I am about all this very confusing and difficult uh, world that's, uh, that's out there. And a couple of you have said to me, you know, uh, I gather you're gonna be talking about foreign policy. Try to make it interesting for me, will you please? Because it's, it's not something that naturally arouses my, my initial intention. It seems to me that those of us who uh, aspire to uh, participate in the political leadership of the country have an obligation. And we have an obligation to, not to explain from on high, but to really try to explain and dialogue with Canadians about how we can't ignore not only we can't ignore, but how we, we, are, we are inextricably caught up in this world. And the meaning of globalization is not some abstract noun. The meaning of globalization is that what happens in far off places really matters to us. Now, 1938, the most popular politician in the Western world was Neville Chamberlain. There were Neville, Neville Chamberlain dolls and 
and people were selling, uh, you know, umbrellas and bowler hats as symbols of this most popular statesman, not only in the United Kingdom, but around the world. Principally because Chamberlain told people what they wanted to hear. And in his very famous BBC broadcast, after the Munich Agreement, at which time the, the British and the French and everyone else basically abandoned Czechoslovakia and said, you know, Hitler can carve you up, we're going we're gonna to sign a deal, came back and he said, you know, Czechoslovakia is a country very, very far away. People are fighting over there and arguing with each other, and we really don't know what it's all about. It's a little country about which we know little. Well, if you fast forward to Afghanistan in two, the year 2000, I expect many people would have said the same thing about Afghanistan. They would have said, it's a far off country, it's far away, people have been fighting there for generations, they've been fighting there for years. Uh, you know, let them get on with it, there's nothing we can do. There's no intervention on our part that's going to make any difference, it's going to resolve that conflict. And then, of course, came 9-11. And, of course, a year, 17 months after the Munich Agreement, came World War II. And the person who told people like it was, Winston Churchill, was at the moment that he told people like it was in 1938, probably the most unpopular politician in the United Kingdom. I say this because, not because I aspire to unpopularity, I want to assure <laughs> my friends that that's not the case. But even if, that was, if it was true in 1938 that Czechoslovakia was not in fact a little country far away of which we could afford to know any, nothing, it's even truer today. There are no corners in the world about which we can afford to be ignorant or about which we can choose to say it doesn't matter. If there's a referendum coming in southern Sudan, what will the impact of that be on the entire region when that referendum happens? Nobody in political leadership in, in the Conservative Party is talking about what that possible consequence can be. Where are the next Afghanistans in Yemen and Somalia? Where are the, the tens of millions of refugees moving around the world because of the nature of conflict that's taking place? And the, when you when we talk to each other, we have to understand that the things that we aspire to in the world, because we are inextricably connected to this world, we are in this world and this world is in us. That's who we are. That's who we are and why we're there. The things we seek in the world are the same things that we seek for ourselves. We seek prosperity and we need prosperity. Unemployment is a terrible thing. Underemployment is a terrible thing. It has a disastrous impact on, on people's morale, on people's ability to care for themselves, on people's ability to provide what it takes to help other people. The, 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 the attack on joblessness in this country and in the United States and around the world is a, is a critical and primary challenge for all, of our, uh, for all of our countries. We seek social justice. We seek opportunity. We seek a sense of fairness. We seek recognition for who we are. We seek we seek uh, respect. These, this is, we seek dignity. These things are all fundamental to the, what it means to be a human being. It's true for ourselves. It's true for our neighbors around on the street. It's true for, it's true for people who are on a street perhaps uh, a couple of thousand or tens of thousands of miles away. It's the same thing. We seek a planet that's sustainable. We want to be free from violence. We want to be free from fear. 
We want to be free from enormous physical and personal insecurity. That's what we seek. We worry about crime. No political party, despite what one party might tell you, no political party has a monopoly on a concern about crime. People often say about others, well, you're soft on crime. I've never met anybody who's soft on crime. Everybody wants to deal with crime. Maybe different versions of how you deal with it, but everybody shares that concern. But let me tell you, if crime is a concern for us, imagine what it is a concern for our friends in Mexico. Imagine what it is for our friends in, in Colombia. Imagine what it is for, uh, for those who are, who are being affected by piracy on the, on, the, uh, on the seas off the coast of Somalia. These things, these things are not immune from us or alien to us. They're all connected to us. So of necessity, we seek the extension of the rule of law. We seek the establishment of institutions that will provide us with security. And that's really been the job that we've done as Canadians over the last 50, 60 years. We were present at the founding of the United Nations. We were architects of the United Nations. We were architects of, of, of NATO. We've been architects of the creation of every single international institution since that time. We were at the forefront of the International Criminal Court and its creation. We were at the forefront in dealing with, uh, with landmines. We are, by our very nature, in every part of our makeup, we are a multilateral country. We're a country that believes in extending the rule of law. It's true for, for, for violence. It's true for environmental sustainability. It's true for, for the creation of greater, of greater prosperity. We have to fight our way in pride. We're not, we're not part of any, of only one other natural unit, like Europe or, or South America or, or Asia Pacific. We're a parts of all of these groups. And because we are who we are, we are going to have to spend more time creating sustainable institutions, more time creating a stronger, a stronger position. And yes, it's a world that's full of danger as well as a world that's full of conflict. And so what choice do we have but to be internationally engaged? And what choice do we have but to be leaders in the world? But we received a wake-up call as a country just a few short weeks ago when the United Nations said, well, actually, we don't think you are leaders anymore, or we don't think that you're leaders right now, and we're not prepared, prepared to put you on the Security Council. And I, I don't intend to make a deeply partisan speech today, although we'll have some few partisan elements, I want to assure you. <laughs> but it seems to me that it's, it's ludicrous to walk away from that vote and say there are no lessons to be drawn other than the sort of the Groucho Marx lesson, which we now hear much in the corridors of conservative Ottawa, where people are saying, well, we never really wanted to be a member of that club anyway. And we can't, we can't afford to take that, that position. So it seems to me that moment was a moment for us to take stock, for us to take stock as a country and understand that the traditional role that we've seen for ourselves as natural leaders, as natural internationalists, as natural multilateralists, as people who believe in international institutions and extending the rule of law, that we've, that we've somehow not been able to deliver that message as clearly as we need to, as we need to deliver it. And I, I, I start with a very basic premise of our public policy. And that is you have to have good ideas and you have to have good people to carry them out. Good ideas mean Ideas that are direct, 
that understand our national interests, understand our values, and also understand the importance of extending our commitments and constructively engaging with our commitments and not taking simplistic decisions or simplistic positions because you think it's going to placate or pander to a particular section of the, of the community. The world is not incomprehensible, but it is, a, it, is a, it is a big world, and it is a complex world. And yes, it does, it does help if you have people with the expertise to carry it out. So the first thing that I would criticize the Harper government for doing is for completely undermining the role of our Foreign Service, for the role of our, of our diplomats. Every single ambassador today in the Harper government has to send any text of any speech that he or she is giving to the Prime Minister's office to be approved, not personally by the Prime Minister because he doesn't have the time to do that, but probably by a 25 or 30-year-old staff member who has never been to the country in question, who doesn't know anything about the issues which the ambassador is raising, and who's, and who's trying to control and, and, and keep guard on every statement that's made, on every message that emerges from this professional service. So when you look at the decisions which the Harper government has taken on a variety of subjects, I can assure you those are decisions which are taken despite the best advice of our Foreign Service, despite the best advice of many people in business, despite the best advice of many people who are actively engaged in, in the settlement of disputes or in dealing with the questions at hand. That doesn't work. It doesn't, the world doesn't work that way. You can't have a captain control style of diplomacy. You can't have a captain control style of management. You can't have a captain control style of engagement. A new liberal government, day one, would say to our public service and would say to our foreign service, this is your day, we want your advice, we're not afraid of what you have to say. We need you to take the job that we want done around the world, and we're not going to tell you every day, every second of every day, how you're going to do your job. Get on with the job and do it. We're proud of what you do, and we want to support you in what you do. On ne peut pas avoir une diplomatie complètement contrôlée. On ne peut pas avoir un gouvernement où c'est seulement le capitaine qui comprend la situation, le capitaine qui est en charge, le capitaine qui donne les ordres, le capitaine qui dit toujours « c'est ça qu'on va faire et pas ça ». On ne peut pas gérer un gouvernement comme ça. J'en sais quelque chose. Ça exige l'utilisation de toutes les forces, de toutes les capacités, de tous les avantages que nous avons comme Canadiens. Et c'est la seule façon où nous allons retourner au leadership, c'est en donnant à notre, nos forces diplomatiques, la capacité de faire leur travail. But it's not just a question of that. When we look at particular disputes, and I want to speak of just two in particular today, political issues that are significant for Canadians, it takes more than just ideology. It takes more than just a narrow casting of, of issues for us to be able to make the kind of progress that we need to make. With respect to the Middle East, a region that I've been visiting a lot over the last three years. This has to be said. 
There is more than one narrative, and there is more than one story to be told. And nobody can take away from me or from any other member of my political party our support for the State of Israel, our support for the security of the State of Israel, our support for not just the existence of the state, but for the vitality of the state, for the prosperity of the state. We were there in 1947. We were there in 1948. We've been there ever since, not just as one party or another, but as a country. And I can tell you, when I was in Israel two weeks ago, every senior Israeli official I met said, we in Israel don't regard the support for Israel as a partisan question. We believe that we have a deep-seated support in every major part of the country, your country, and we deeply appreciate the support that we have from Canada, which is a wonderful thing. But there is another story. When in 1947 the United Nations voted because a Canadian judge, Judge Rand, said, yes, we support the partition of the old British mandate in Palestine, when he, when he said that, we created, we, in effect, we created two states. We created a Jewish state, and then we created the possibilities of an Arab state, which at the time was not accepted by the Arabs because the Arabs didn't, couldn't accept the existence of a Jewish state. And so we've had since 1947, 1948, we've had a, a deep and enduring and difficult and intense conflict. And historically, Canada has always said, we understand the nature of this conflict, we believe powerfully in the right of Israel to exist. We believe powerfully in the right of a Jewish state to exist in the Middle East. We believe the Jews have an historic right to be there. We believe they have a right to their own state. And then we have to turn around and say, not in contradiction and not because we're trying to please anybody or make both sides happy, but simply because there is another story to be told. We believe just as strongly that there needs to be a Palestinian state in the other half of the British mandate. We believe that strongly, and we don't see a contradiction in that. And it's important for us as Canadians to, to keep coming back to this question and for us to be able to say, I want to be able to give the same speech in a synagogue as I give in a temple. I want to have exactly the same comments that I make in a mosque as that I make in, in any breakfast club uh, in the Jewish community of, of this city or any other city across the country. I don't want to go into one community and say one thing and go into another community and say another thing. We have to have a consistent, profound message as Canadians. And throughout the Middle East, the question has always come across my, my, my ears, where's Canada? Where's the Canada, where's the Canada of Lester Pearson? Where's the Canada that... that that looked at the Suez conflict and said, we need to intervene to stop, to stop this from escalating. How do we make sure that there is there's an end to escalation? That's the Canada that I, I want to see. It's not, the, not simply that I want something back for which I have a strong sense of nostalgia. It's in our interest to be that Canada. It's not in our interest to take, to take a, 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 a narrow view. It's in our interest to take a view that includes the narrative of more, more than just one side. And now on Afghanistan. Well, you know, I've had a bit of a bit of, uh, few reviews on Afghanistan. I want to talk to you very directly about it. After 9-11, the West, NATO, and the United Nations made a decision. 
that we could not afford to have a government in existence in Afghanistan which tolerated the practice of terrorism, which tolerated attacks on civilians, such as we saw in the Twin Towers, and a state which directly permitted that to happen, directly permitted the training, directly permitted the camps to exist, directly provided support, financial and otherwise, to al-Qaeda. We said we can't, we can't let that happen. Canada was part of that under Mr. Kretchen. Under Mr. Martin, we extended our mission into Kandahar with the support of the United Nations, with, in full participation with NATO. Kandahar has proven to be a very difficult place. For a long time, we were there virtually alone. The Americans took their eye off the ball in Afghanistan, went off to Iraq, which we opposed, and we paid a price for that loss of attention. And now we finally got the attention back. People understand the importance of this focus, the importance of this question. We made a decision in 2008 that we would, as a country, we would end our combat mission in, in 2011, that we would continue and maintain the civilian work we were doing, that we would keep on working with the Afghan government, with the Afghan institutions, with Afghan NGOs. And now we've made a decision, and I think the decision will be confirmed, very clearly to say that combat mission will come to an end, but the job in Afghanistan is not, is not yet done. And what is the job? The job is to ensure a degree of stability in Afghanistan. Can we promise that we will be successful? No. Can we guarantee that this is going to be a, a huge success? No. But what are the alternatives? Are the alternatives just to say, well, we don't care what happens, or we're going to leave and we're going to continue to try and do civilian work? Well, I don't know if you've been to Afghanistan. It's not exactly the easiest place to do work unless you have security. And if you don't have security, if you're serious about saying we want to build up the other elements, we want to keep working for the equality of women, we want to keep working for the, a wider participation, we want to fight corruption, well, we, we, we need to be in the game if we want to do that. We need to be able to ensure that we're, we're saying to NATO, we want you to provide some security for what our people are doing, and they will, NATO will quite rightly say, well, what, what are you prepared to do? So if we say we're not prepared to do anything, I don't think that's in the best interest of Canada. I don't think that's in the finest traditions of our diplomacy. I don't think it's in our national interest. And then I hear some people say, even on television, some people say, well, you know, Mr. Ray, you've made a terrible tactical mistake because you could have fought the Conservatives on that issue and you would have had a lot of popular support if you'd taken on the Conservatives and you could have really drawn a wedge between you and them. And my answer to those people is to say, what about Canada? <laughs> what about Afghanistan? I can think of lots of ways in which one could drive a wedge with, against the Conservatives, but if I don't think it's in the long-term interest of my country, what kind of a person would I be, and what kind of a party would the Liberal Party be if it walked away from 60 years of international engagement, its role as a founder of NATO, 
Its role as a founder of the United Nations, the advice and requests that we've received from every major international institution with respect to our participation in Afghanistan, and, and someone is seriously suggesting that we walk away from all that because we think there might be 2,000 more votes in Toronto Centre if we did that as opposed to something else? That's the kind of pandering that has led us and leads us to make profound mistakes in our foreign policy. As long as I am the foreign affairs critic for the Liberal Party of Canada, I say to you, the interests of my country come first. The interests that we have, <clears throat> the interests that we have and share as Canadians will come first. And I say, does that mean sometimes you talk to people on the other side? Absolutely. And I can say in the presence of some deputy ministers here from my days as Premier and other times, anybody who's known about my political career over the last years will know. <laughs> I'm as old as my mustache, is all I can say. Will know perfectly well that there have always been times when, I've, when I, have, I have made, have reached understandings. How do you think we, we and I know they're controversial, how did we do Meech Lake? How did we do Charlottetown? Do you think we did it by pandering to our own self-interest as political parties? My friends, there are some times when Canadians expect us to rise to the occasion. When they say, well, where's the, where's the leadership here? And, and I, I listen to some of the criticism of, of, what, of what it is the Liberal Party has done, and I just say, I don't see any profound intellectual merit in it. I don't see the depth, the depth of understanding in it, and I don't see the best traditions of, of Canadian public policy in it. And for that reason, I don't know why we would do it. Even if, for, for a moment or two, somebody says, well, I disagree with what you said. Let me go back to 1938. Who was the most popular? Who was the most unpopular? The one thing I know, and my very existence here is a sign of this, Public opinion changes. <laughs> it, it varies tremendously. It doesn't stay in one place because people in our own lives, in, our own, in, our own, in a week, we change our minds about how we feel or think about something because somebody's given us a new fact or the situation suddenly, suddenly changes. And what we need with respect to our foreign policy, not in some narrow diplomatic sense, but in a sense of understanding what is our broad national interest, how are we going to lead on the environment, for example? How are we going to lead on the question of sustainability if we're simply looking for a, a short-term solution? If we're simply saying, well, what's the short-term answer here? The dilemma we have on the environmental sustainability issue domestically, internationally, is that we, 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 we continue to set huge targets for ourselves reaching out to 2050 and yet nobody's prepared to take the tough decisions today that are actually going to start to get us there. Because that's a hard thing to do. Somebody said, Mr. Ray, are you in favor of a 60% reduction in 2050 or an 80% reduction? Oh, let's go. Let, why 80? Why, why not 100? That's not the issue. Just a number in the air. It doesn't have any meaning for people. The question is, what are we actually prepared to do on sustainability? The policy of the Conservative Party is to say, we're going to wait for the American Congress to take strong action on the environment. And when they do, we're going to follow behind them. There should be laughter in the hall. I mean, <laughs> has anybody watched what the American Congress is saying about the environment? You will, wait, you will wait a very, very long time 
for there to be strong and decisive action on the environment from the United States Congress? That's not the question. The question is, what is Canada prepared to do? And not as what Canada prepared to do in 2050. What are we prepared to do over the next year, over the next two years, over the next five years? And when the Conservatives say to me, oh, you know what, emissions have gone down over the last three years, I have a very simple answer. Isn't it amazing what a recession will do for industrial emissions? When you shut plants down, it's amazing. They suddenly stop polluting. We can't hide behind that either. We have to start taking action. And we have to, if we're going to be able to lead in Cancun, we have to be able to lead at home. These things go together. They're not separate. What we do, what we do domestically on social justice, what we do domestically on gun control, what we do domestically uh, with respect to pursuing prosperity, it all connects in every conceivable way to what's going on around the world. The notion that somehow charity stops at the border, justice stops at the border, jobs stop at the border, and that we all need to refocus our attention back home because that's where the problems are. I'm sorry, the world is not like that. The world is such that we have to lead at home and we have to lead abroad. And there isn't a single issue that you can look at home. AIDS, the condition of the Aboriginal people of Canada, what's happening with respect to immigration. Just go down the list. And every time you start talking about it, you instantly realize that everything is connected to what's going on in the world. It's not a matter of saying, I want to have something back. It's about saying, where do we want to go in the future? And how can we imagine a solution that does not involve a profound and constructive engagement with the rest of the world? Nicholas was kind enough to mention my book at the beginning of his, uh, of his introduction, <coughs> and he was kind enough to read from it. Just want to say one last thing about, about the theme in that book. It is, this, the theme is very simple. There is an inevitable and a natural tension between our desire for democracy, our desire for human rights, our sense that these are values that are truly universal, they're not culture-bound, we see them wherever we go. And I can tell you when I have my friends, a couple of friends from Sri Lanka here, when I visited in Sri Lanka and you talk to people about their aspirations and their hopes for the future, they're no different. They're not profoundly different from the aspirations and hopes that people have in our own country. They're not sort of way, way off the, the scale or the charts. They're talking about wanting to have work, wanting to have a government that's not corrupt, wanting to know that, that they can they go to sleep at night knowing that the door won't, somebody won't be a knock at the door and a policeman come by and take people away. They want to be able to walk down the street without getting shot at. So these are universal values, and this is the world in which we're living, in which, in which conflict and extremism are things we constantly have to deal with. But the only way to deal with it is through a process of truly constructive engagement on the part of our governments. And we can't, we cannot have governments in place that say either this part of the world is not important or this part of the world is more important than that part. We think South America is more important than Africa. What, some, some, how, what, is, what, what, what would lead you to that particular conclusion, one way or the other? Uh, and, 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 and frankly, 
a, a government that is so intent on constantly looking for the ideological divide. And I don't know, frankly, over the last couple of weeks, what's been more, more surprising to me. <laughs> sometimes it's the reaction of one's friends, but sometimes it's the reaction of the people across the way. And they would say things to me like, are you serious? I said, yes. They say, well, but this might not be in your, you know, are you sure this is? I said, yeah. Hmm. We surprise Canadians and we surprise ourselves when we do things that are actually in the national interest. When we live up to the standards that we set for others and apply them to ourselves. When we say we want a Canada that is at its best when it's setting a standard and that the world will look to us for that standard, not because we talk about it, but because we practice it, because we believe in it. And we don't just talk about it, we also do it. That's the Canada that I want to see once again leading the way on the world stage. Not because we're the biggest, not because we're the most powerful, not because we can throw our weight around. We can't. But because we're a country that believes in things, that has earned its place through the work and the sacrifices and the efforts and the courage that our civilians and our soldiers have shown in decade after decade after decade, and because our politicians are equal to the standard that they set for us. When I was in Afghanistan in June, I know there are a lot of different pictures we have in our heads as to what that conflict is about. But we were taken by a helicopter to a small base, which really just means a a place with some mud, mud walls around it where people feel a relative sense of security. And there were Afghan soldiers and there were Canadian soldiers. And there was a Canadian colonel and there was an Afghan colonel. And there was a remarkable young woman from CETA. And we were all around in a, in a circle and she was giving us a briefing about the challenges that they faced in that particular part of the world about the fact that there was no, uh, very few health clinics, the fact that it was very difficult to get the schools built and to get the schools maintained, that it was very difficult to do business with some people because they were constantly looking for money on the side and that wasn't the way Canada did business. And the Afghan colonel stood up and he said, the Canadians don't talk to us as if they're better than us. The Canadians are our partners. That's the world we want to build, where the Canadians are the partners that the world can count on. Thank you very much.
So I believe we have, uh, we have a few minutes for questions. I believe we have a, uh, time for, for maybe uh, two questions. Two questions. I'll take a short at the back, sir. Uh, while trying to promote, as your book is titled, to export democracy among developing countries. I mean, you said it best, but we inherit the earth from our kids. We don't get it from our parents, right? I think it's a big challenge. I mean, I think the, the, the book is actually not a, it's, it's, its title is Exporting Democracy, but really it's not about that that's what you can do. You can't really export it. All you can do is share it, aspire to share it. And, and work with people on, on what it can mean for them. And when you share something, you have to realize that we have, in many cases, as significant a democratic deficit and as significant and real a democratic challenge as, as, as other countries. You, you can't go into countries and, and, and I mean, I, again, I, I went to, I was visiting once in the, they were talking about how terrible it was the government, whenever they got into an inconvenient moment, they just dissolved parliament. I said, that's, I don't wonder what that's like. I can't even imagine what that would be like. Um, <laughs> so the key, the key, it seems to me, to the engagement with, with the next generation and younger generations is to talk about issues that matter to them. If we, if we don't, if the national conversation does not include the issues that really matter to people, under the ages of 40, then don't be surprised if people under the age of 40 don't vote very much. It's as simple as that. And I think we've, got a, we've all got a responsibility to, to, uh, to do that. Yes, Mr. Atai. Uh, my question is, I believe we are believing in our democracy and we are a strong country in the world. So, like Canada country, we are the best ever multiculturalism country in the world to believe in human rights. Anything, anything in the world, open, uh, happenings like disasters, tsunami, any countries in the world call us for help. We are, our heart is open all the times. We are anywhere that we are, we, we are looking the world to save the life, human life. Why, like Canada, best country in the world, why we lost the Security Council cheers in United Nations and the Harper government. And his, he is administration blame the liberal. So who is the cause, please, and thank you if you give us some uh, explains about this situation. Why? Because we are at the best peace nation in the world. Why does it happen to Canada? Thank you very much. I, I think the, uh, thank you for the question, and I, I, think it's a, I think it's a very important one. First of all, I don't think we'll ever know the final answer to it because it's a secret vote. Uh, but my own assessment of the situation is the following. First of all, the Harper government took too long to decide to, to do it, to run for the seat. They spent a long time saying they, didn't sure, they weren't sure they wanted to try. Uh, at the beginning of the campaign, it was a very half-hearted campaign uh, in terms of the, the political leadership that's required to make this kind of thing work. Uh, they, they didn't use all the resources that they had available to them, including, if I may say so, the official opposition. We were never asked to, uh, to, to do anything with respect to it. Um, I think when we finally, uh, the final prime minister finally got engaged was at the very end, and by then a lot of countries had already made up their minds. And I think, frankly, there were two or three things that we did that, uh, that had a, we paid a price for. One was we, we did not engage China quickly enough. The Prime Minister ignored China for several years because of 
his own political views about China, and uh, we, we paid a price for that lack of engagement. Uh, and China is a country of influence in the world, and if you don't understand that, then you don't understand the world. Secondly, we've made some very wrong-headed decisions about Africa, which the government is still making. They're planning to close embassies in Africa, which is very short-sighted. They uh, cut off aid to a number of Francophone countries, which is very short-sighted, and then they're surprised when the African countries say they're not prepared to do it. And I actually think that the decision on, on the, the base in Dubai had an impact. I think that the fact that we lost the UAE as a, as a supporter in the last uh, three weeks of the campaign, the United Arab Emirates is a country of influence in the Middle East. And some people say to me, uh, you know, is the big reason was Israel? And I say, no, I don't think so. Germany was just as strong a supporter of Israel as Canada. Uh, no ambiguity in Germany's position, no ambiguity in ours. I think the reason had to do with, with, with other things that uh, we allowed to happen uh, and uh, mistakes that were made along the way. And, and I think there was a, a sense among a number of countries that, that Canada was not as supportive of the United Nations as an institution, the, the work that it was trying to do. Uh, as, it, as it needed to be, or at least it did not appear to be, and we paid a price for that. But these things are all fixable. Um, this is not a permanent uh, uh, sort of a, a permanent view. It's not a permanent report card. Uh, we can pick up our socks and we can, we can do things differently. We can engage differently. And I think if we do that and do that successfully, then I think we can, uh, we can succeed. Thank you. I'd like to call uh, Helen Burston, past president of the Canadian Club of Toronto, to the podium. Thank you. It's my pleasure to thank the Honourable Bob Bray for addressing the Canadian Club of Toronto today. We're very grateful that you've made this podium a regular stop on your journey through public life. You've worn many hats, given careful thought to many issues, and championed many causes over the years, perhaps none more vigorously than democracy and the exercise of it by Canadians. And every time you've written wisely or spoken publicly at the Canadian Club and at countless other venues here and abroad, you've made a lasting impact on your readers and your listeners. Your remarks today have been among the most thought-provoking we've heard this season, and I'm particularly struck by your comments on the leadership conundrum that we as Canadians face. We are fortunate to have the opportunity to serve the world as leaders. Of course, with that opportunity comes responsibility that requires us to question constantly what is right, what is fair, what is needed, where we have erred, and where we can do better. You appreciate, convey, and share the obligations of democratic leadership better than anyone. Thank you for being with us today and for the leadership you demonstrate every day. Thank you, Helen. Thank you again, Your Honor. And thanks once more to the Dominion for helping to make this event possible. This concludes our television programming, which has been broadcast live on Rogers TV. We are grateful to Rogers TV and 680 News for their continuing promotion of Canadian Club events. Thank you to all of you in the room for joining us. 
This meeting is now adjourned.